It's week seven of 2018, and here on the IT Pro TV podcast, we're going to talk about AI chips and Faraday cages. But first, we're going to talk about David Quartz and his newest venture, Plum, and how its cybersecurity roots have helped it be one of the most innovative new Internet of Things devices. That's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm joined, as always, by Don Bazette because we're here in Don's office. Don, how you doing? I am doing great, and you know, excited about this episode because you know we normally launch talking about the tech news, but every now and then we get special interviews, and we have one of those special interviews today. So stay tuned; you're definitely in for a treat. Yep, we can see him right here between <laughs> us. We have uh, David Koretz, who's the uh, CEO of Plum, uh, and we're going to get to Plum and what Plum is uh, a little bit later. But we, we really want to talk to David about. His whole history, he's got uh, a really cool resume, basically, when you look down um, LinkedIn. Right now, we're pending on LinkedIn, so we'll see um, if he <laughs> says yes. But, uh, David, uh, thank you so much for joining us today from uh, sunny, beautiful Miami. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So let's kind of start at the beginning. If you can kind of give us a little bit of, of background. You were telling us a little off uh, off the air a moment ago about um, how things got started for you. So um, you were you originally you were the founder and chief executive officer at uh, at Blue Tie. So so um, to start the story, let's let's start with what was Blue Tie and what were you guys doing there? Yeah, well, actually, that was not my first company. So I started my first one when I was 14 years old. Uh, I was a freshman in high school and geeky and really excited about this idea that was coming of age called home automation. And it was this idea that all of a sudden you could start to control your entire home like a computer. And as someone who got into computers early, that was super exciting. So I started working on home automation, uh, built a small business that scaled really quickly, sold it when I was 17, and then got really excited about what was happening as the internet met software. So what BlueTie did is basically, if you're familiar with Microsoft Outlook and Exchange, back in the day of 99, when I actually started BlueTie, every single business bought their own hardware, they bought their own server, and they stood up their own Exchange server. To me, that was crazy, right? 10 employees buying a server that maybe got 5% utilization at best just made no sense. So we built the first web-based alternative to Microsoft Outlook and Exchange. It was called BlueTie. Uh, and it took off. About 200,000 businesses and about 2.5 million users were on that platform. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people forget about that stuff, that before there was Gmail and before there was Hotmail, that you know, having a, a fat client that ran on top of a desktop OS and connected to a mail server, that was the way to go. And, and there was a ton of, of just challenges. You'd always hear about people where, oh, I downloaded that email via POP3 at my work computer. Now I can't get at it from my home. So that that whole web environment, that really changed things. But there were a lot of challenges with offering web services. I, today, there's a lot of challenges with offering web services, right? Because you, you have to take what would traditionally be a private server or a server that only allowed like SMTP traffic on port 25. And now you've got to open it up and allow web traffic and in-house developed applications like protecting and securing that stuff was a big challenge. Today, I look at it, and I'm like, man, it's a big challenge, and there's all these tools. But back then, how did you guys go about making sure that, that you, you were able to keep that software safe and secure? Well, you're right. We were one of the early software as service companies. So before we even had cybersecurity problems, we had problems where small businesses would say, you know, Blue Tie's running too slow, and we'd find out they were on an AOL dial-up connection. <laughs> so only about half the businesses even had broadband when we started. So it was actually a pretty crazy time. Um, we ultimately, as we started scaling, what we found was, and my, by the way, at the time, you have to remember, nobody believed software as service was the future. In fact, they, they didn't even know the term. They were calling us a dot-com. And even though we were providing a business service, we were charging for it, right? In those days, people sort of weren't sure how to categorize us. And even Microsoft said, you know, I remember there's a quote from Computer Reseller News where the head of Microsoft Exchange said, small businesses are never going to put their data on the internet. They're never going to trust the web. And obviously, sort of that proved not to be true. Um, but along the way, there were some very real problems. And one of them was cybersecurity. And what was happening is we ran people's email, their calendar, their contact management. So all of their critical business services were sitting on our servers. And that, on top of that, we had credit card information. And so 
we were incredibly valuable to a group of companies that were in the business out of mostly out of Eastern Europe of stealing credit card information for profit. And at the same time, we often had customers where their clients were involved in an adversarial transaction. And if you could read the other side's email, that'd be incredibly invaluable. And so we were often finding attacks coming mostly out of Asia, where the goal was not money, but it was really information. And that sort of set us down this really crazy path of spinning off the first deception-based security company. Yeah, and so I'm curious about that uh, that process for you, how that went, because normally if someone faces something like that, they look outside and they say, okay, let's see what uh, what vendor can help us um, with a problem like this. But you chose to go the other way and, and bring it in-house and say, uh, you know, let, let's build the, the perfect solution for us. Is that because you, you looked outside and you couldn't find anything or just because you, you, had, you knew you had the talent in-house? No, I think when we first looked at it, we had the same reaction everyone else did, which is what can we buy? And I think that's usually the smart way to do it, right? The, when tech companies start getting that not invented here syndrome, you know, negative things usually end up happening. So we were sort of looking for commercial vendors. The problem we were finding is every time we came, uh, had these vendors come in and they give their pitch and they'd walk out of the room and our team would look around the tables thinking, you know, this is soft science. Like even if your product could do what it said it could do, it still wouldn't actually solve the problem. And it was, it was actually out of our own frustration that we finally said, we think there's a better way. And so we started down this path of building something that I think nobody believed was a good idea at the time. And so that was uh, Mykonos then. So uh, can you tell us about what that product was and then uh, kind of what led to the decision to go ahead and spin that off? It's kind of one of those fun stories about almost an accidental invention where you realize, hey, we've got something that's not just good for us, but good for everybody. So the core idea that we had that really was very different than what the rest of the world was doing is our strategy was, wouldn't it be amazing if instead of trying to build this perfect protection, and you'll hear the concept defense in depth, you'll hear layered security, there's all these different cybersecurity terms, but what they all sort of mean net-net is, let me build a perfect wall and I'll stop bad guys with that wall. And the reality is far different, right? The reality is there is no such thing as a perfect wall. Every fortress, whether it's physical or virtual, has its flaws. And we said, you know what, rather than trying to build a perfect wall, let's actually start to hack the hacker. So let's manipulate the attack surface. Let's look at what the attacker's doing. Let's try to measure their threat level and skill level so we can separate the wheat from the chafe. And then most importantly, as you guys know well, everything in the internet is based on an IP address. And that the problem with that is that means that it could be one person in a home computer, or it means it could be 30,000 people hidden behind a proxy server. And so going from the IP address, which is like knowing they live somewhere in Miami, to the individual computer, which is knowing where they actually are, was a huge difference. So my team, uh, much to the chagrin of several of the cybersecurity national agencies, built the first super cookie a cookie that was unlike a marketing cookie that would actually inject onto the attacker's computer and it would keep itself persistent even if you tried to delete it, even if you cleared caching cookies. See, that technology is really awesome. I know um, there's the saying that if you, if you don't, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it, right? And, and throughout history, you see things like this. General Patton actually had a quote. Uh, this is one of my, my uh, uh, favorite like historical figures. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that uh, fixed fortifications are monuments to man's stupidity, right? And a, a firewall is like that as a fixed fortification. You're, you're saying, I know how they're going to attack me. And so I'm going to stop that. But the reality is you, you don't know how they're going to attack you. And they can always come up with new creative ways. And, and if they can find a way around that firewall, it all falls apart. So what you guys were doing was basically reaching out and putting a stamp on them and saying, this is a bad actor, and then it doesn't really matter how they attack at that point because you're able to identify them, right? So it, it didn't even necessarily matter what protocol they were using at that point as long as you're able to detect that cookie somehow? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, st- we were focused on web app security, um, but I, I totally agree with the sentiment. I think you know it's bizarre to me that even to this day, companies still are trying to be in the business of building a perfect wall. And you know it's sort of, if you think about it, um, It's for people that are bad at math. It's like the buying lottery tickets equivalent of protecting yourself, right? On the defending side, you need to protect against every known and unknown vulnerability in the world. 
And on the attacking side, you just need the one flaw, and any flaw will do. And so you just have sort of a, a horrible uh, economic disparity between the attacker and the defender in favor of the attacker. So, uh, so what is the end goal then with, with something like this? Are you looking to um, be able to identify that hacker so you can uh, report them to someone? Or is it just to kind of tag them so that um, you're able to identify them and share that information with other people who are, are potentially uh, at risk from that, that hacker? So there's two sides to it. Um, the primary goal was actually a little different. It was actually how do you change the economics of hacking? So one of the things we did, for example, is if you try to run an automated hacking tool, like most hackers are not brilliant, they're script kiddies. And, you know, for every one sort of truly brilliant, incredible hacker, there's, you know, 99 kids that are just downloading stuff off the internet, and then you're, they're using these automated tools built by someone else. And so one of the first things we did is said, let's break all these tools. So if you ran a vulnerability tool against a server that we were protecting, Instead of trying to pretend that no flaw existed, we would do the opposite. We would flood it with false positives so that the tool results would show thousands of vulnerabilities that weren't real, basically rendering the tool useless. So our primary goal was let's change those economics back in favor of the defender and not in favor of the attacker. Um, the, the term you're talking about of, of actually whether or not you identify the physical person, which is really big in the law enforcement world right now, and it's sort of a source of debate. Um, I don't think it has a whole lot of value. You know, knowing it's a certain person that lives in Shenzhen, you know, it's great that you know that, but you have no ability to extradite. <laughs> yeah. Most of the best are state sponsors. So I don't personally believe there's a lot of value in identification. I think, you know, changing the economics has a lot more real world value. Yep. Now, the, the, the product was successful for you guys. It certainly worked to protect your investments and, and to protect Blue Tie. Um, at some point, it, it spun off into its own entity and then was ultimately sold over to Juniper, right? How, how did that process go? So it was sort of a controversial decision internally uh, to spin it out. And it always, it's always tough when you're, when you're sort of taking something out of a company that people sort of had grown accustomed to believing was part of the business. But I made the decision that, one, it needed to be a separate company, Two, it really needed to be in Silicon Valley because that was sort of the center of the world and still is for cybersecurity. And so I, I made two tough decisions at once. One, I decided this really is a different business. And two, I decided I was going to leave the company I was running to go run this company that at the time wasn't a company. We had seven people. We had no revenue. Uh, we hadn't built a product yet. We just sort of had this theory. But it was a theory that I was so excited about and so compelled by that I felt the need to pursue it. And so it was one of this, these decisions that I think you sort of remember forever uh, in every person's entrepreneurial journey. And for me, uh, 18 months later, I was living in California. We sold the company for just under $100 million to Juniper, and I was an employee for the first time in my life. And so it turned out to be an amazing run. Uh, and, and for our, our viewers or our listeners that have never heard of Mykonos, you might not have because it's been incorporated now as a part of... Uh, it's part of Juniper's mainline products, right? Yeah, that's right. A lot of the tech, um, you know, the problem with every cybersecurity is uh, every, you know, CISO that's out there that's sort of in the world of trying to protect is everyone's constantly trying to sell them one more device, one more appliance. And so, you know, we tried to actually integrate it into the core firewall so that we could actually have one less product to sell, but one with a lot more capability. So one, one um, question I have kind of about the... Um how this this process works is, uh, you know, I'll watch these superhero movies and I'm always thinking of, of well, sure, that's great. He caught the bad guy, but look how many uh, laws he broke along the way. Are, are you doing anything that, that's questionable at, at that point when you're attacking the hackers uh, back? Or, or uh, is that something that uh, you've run into any problems with along the way? Um, so I haven't been involved with the business for about five years now, so mm -hmm. I probably can't speak to its current. But, you know, at the time people sort of didn't know what to do with us. We built this super cookie and there were absolutely people that were saying, you know, are you allowed to do this? Like, what about the right of the person uh, that's attacking you, which is sort of an odd idea, but one that you need to take seriously. And, you know, as we started to share it, I think one thing we didn't anticipate was a lot of the, the you domestic three letter agencies are actually way more conservative than you would expect, right? There's always this like, you know, mythos out there on TV about how these guys are really 
doing crazy forward looking things. And um, we found that sort of the opposite was true, which is um, they brought lawyers to the meeting and they were trying to ask us to make sure that we were abiding and consistent with U.S. and foreign law. So, um, no, I, I think all the things we were doing were pretty conservative. The line that was there and the line that I think a lot of people wonder about is what's called hack back, mm-hmm. which is, OK, we were able to identify them. And when you can identify someone, there are things you can do that are more aggressive. Um, we never got far enough to turn those on. Um, I'll just share one funny example with you. So uh, I thought it was funny at the time. I'm not sure he found it as funny, but our CEO at the time ran Microsoft office business at Microsoft. He was a great executive. He now runs uh, CEO of Starbucks. And at the time he built Microsoft office. And I remember that one tiny piece of Microsoft office was probably the most annoying piece of software ever built. And that was that little paper clip. If you remember back in the day, clippy, clippy, clippy. So we built this tool that as you were trying to hack in, we would pop up this paper clip in a black hat and sunglasses saying, you know, I think you're an unsophisticated hacker attempting to hack in. Do you want help with cross-site scripting? Can I help you with SQL injection? <laughs> and everybody loved it, except I'm not sure he thought it was quite as funny. Um, so we ended up publishing it and sharing it. But there, So we did some really fun stuff, but the really aggressive stuff we, we sort of shied away from. Yeah, and it's maybe just the hackers knowing that you've got that information, you know who they are, that you can do that stuff, or you can, you know, maybe provide their information to the people that can. Maybe that's enough to scare some of those people away as well. So, uh, so at this point, then you you've uh, you've sold the the product to Juniper, but but like you said, you stayed on, and it looks like you you stayed in that group for a while. Did you kind of branch off, or did you uh, the whole time you were with Juniper, were you were you working on this this product? No, I actually I ended up. Uh... I was sort of last man standing among the startup CEOs of the companies they'd acquired. And so, you know, sort of one by one, they gave me a bunch of the orphan companies to run. And it ended up becoming this group called Counter Security, which included a bunch of portfolio of advanced products. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, as we were there, they ended up asking me to come and look after uh, the overall products and strategy. So I ended up taking over uh, the billion dollar products and strategy business at Juniper for security. Um, did that for about a year, uh, and it was great, but um, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And so, you know, I knew that I was always going to be at a big company for only so long. And so um, I had bought a vineyard up in Napa Valley. Uh, I'd been a, a wine lover and wine judge for a, for a long time since I was a kid. And ultimately ended up getting so passionate about the idea that was Plum. Um, I took nine months off, traveled around the world, and in the background I was building Plum. Okay, we we won't get into how you were a wine judge when you were a kid. Uh, we'll just we'll just let that one uh, pass. But uh, so that's so, a good story. Oh, okay, then we won't let it pass. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll I'll, sh- I'll share it. I don't normally tell it, but it's it's pretty funny. So, you know, I started my first company when I was fourteen, and by the time I was seventeen, I was doing deals mostly out of Asia Pacific Rim into the U.S. market. And my greatest fear was that they would figure out how old I was and they wouldn't do business with me. Yeah. So I started studying wine. And I had this routine where every time I went to a business meeting, they would invite me to a business dinner. I would sit down and before any menu got put placed on the table, I'd call the sommelier over. And I would pick the most esoteric possible wine, a wine that I knew they wouldn't have in the menu. And I would order that without opening the menu. And he'd say, well, you know, ultimately, of course, we don't have that. And then I'd order the next esoteric wine. And then I'd order the third esoteric wine. And finally, by the third time, he'd say, you know, we don't have that either. I'm really sorry. Like, well, you got to try that. But you know what? Since you don't have any of the wines I like, why don't you just bring what you like? And that was my way of not getting ID'd from age 17 to 21. So <laughs> it started as underage drinking, but it ended up as a love affair it, for 20 years. You don't see a lot of the underage kids, uh, you know, asking for the sommelier at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't think we get a lot of chances to highlight the advantages of underage drinking. You know, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you don't have sponsors for this. So. So I'm sure we've got at least one or two viewers right now thinking, why are we talking about wine? And uh, and I want to I want to mention that uh, you know you said how you hadn't been involved with Mykonos or with Juniper in about five years, and you haven't been idle in that time. You just switched to more of a, a passion project, and your your current company uh, makes a device called the Plum, and Plum is it's pretty neat stuff, and I think it's a great example of. IOT, right? Internet of Things. 
that we're now starting to see these these connected devices that are able to do all sorts of stuff that we didn't even imagine. So, you know, we kind of started the interview talking about when email first made it into a web-based technology. Now we're starting to see all sorts of non-typical computer devices that become interconnected, and Plum's an example of that. So can you just describe for everybody what Plum is real quick so they kind of have an idea where we're coming from, and then we'll talk a little bit about the, the technology side of it. For sure. So um, to take a step back, you know, it's interesting when I started Plum, I think everyone, I told people I was moving to Miami and I was getting into the wine business. I think everyone thought that was code for retirement. I don't think people <laughs> sort of realized that there was a serious business to be built here. Um, you know, the initial idea from Plum, I think like most uh, people that build businesses, it came out of my own frustration. And, um, you know, I was living up in Napa Valley. Um, as I said, I've, I've been a wine lover and a wine judge for a long time. And the thing that I kept finding was I'd open up a bottle of wine wanting a glass. Sometimes my fiance would want a glass of white and I'd want a glass of red. And the next day I ended up pouring, you know, half a bottle of white and half a bottle of red down the drain. And, you know, not a big deal if you drink $10 bottles of wine, but if you drink allocated or collectible wine, which is often a hundred, 200 bucks a bottle, like it gets pretty expensive and pretty painful pretty fast. And so I, I wanted to build this idea and I got it from looking at the super automatic espresso makers. So if you've ever seen Jura or Miele, they make these amazing products where you hit a button and it grinds the beans and it adds milk and it makes the perfect cappuccino at a touch. And I thought if I can have that in the morning, why can't I have the perfect glass of wine at night? And that means that it's preserved. It means that it's actually uh, chilled to the perfect temperature. And it means that I can have a glass without worrying about the rest of the bottle. And so we built this product called Plum that has both a consumer application, but also a really large uh, commercial application. And we're, we're building that now. So, uh, so one question I have about that, because I, you know, looking at the site and, and looking through the the product itself, and I know we'll bring that up here in a second as well. Um, I know when you uh, when you open a nice bottle of wine, and, and I'm not a, a, a big wine guy uh, in in terms of understanding it. I'm I'm a big wine guy in terms of enjoying it. Uh, but I know you know a lot of times you want to let it oxygenate, and and uh, you put it in a decanter or something to let it let it breathe. Essentially, are you are you skipping that step with this? No, so uh, it's a great question, actually. So the way Plum works is it fold the front of it folds down. So the door folds down, and you just drop two bottles in. So you can take any two bottles, red or white, doesn't matter. Um, it can be any varietal. It can even be any closure. It can be a metal cork, a metal screw cap. It can be a natural cork, an engineered cork, an artificial cork. And all you do is drop the bottles in and close the door. And as soon as you do that, cameras actually photograph the label. They push it up to the cloud, look at it against 11 million wines, and automatically using machine learning, a form of AI, identify the vintage, the varietal, the region, the winery, and the wine, set the perfect serving temperature, and then a motorized needle drives right through the foil, right through that cork or closure, pressurizes the bottle with argon gas, which is inert, so it doesn't introduce oxygen, and then it sucks the wine out one glass at a time the moment you're ready. Um, on the way out, we gently add oxygen to the wine. It's called aeration, and we aerate a little bit. The reason we aerate just a little bit is the one mistake most people make when they start getting into wine is, one, they drink their wine way too cold. And there's a saying, if you drink uh, crappy wine, drink it real cold because it kills the flavor. And so that, you know, a little fun fact for anyone on an airplane. <laughs> and then the other thing that they tell you is a lot of wine actually can be damaged by too much aeration. And so what we do is we aerate it a little bit, but it will naturally continue to aerate in your glass. And when you have a, a, a single glass, you have a large surface area, so it aerates quite quickly. So it turns out that it actually is the perfect way to do it. You know, I, uh, I'm not a big wine drinker myself, but uh, I, I usually have company that is. And the challenge that I have just from not knowing wine is some is supposed to be refrigerated, some isn't, and, and you never know. So a device like this, you kind of chuck it in and, and off it goes. What, what I found interesting was... The, the way that you guys do the identification. And I was kind of curious about that. So I, I just assumed that it must scan a barcode when you pop the, the bottle of wine. And, and that's probably my naivety because cheap wine has a barcode. Maybe some expensive <laughs> wine doesn't. But, um, but you guys actually scan the label, you said. How did you, how did you go about getting a database of, of labels? Or are you doing like character recognition for the words? What, how, how does that even work? So uh, we, there's two parts to it. Uh, one, we we actually, there, there, most bottles do not have a barcode. So you actually really can't rely on a barcode. 
Um, so what we do is we photograph it, and then we do a set of algorithmic improvements to the label uh, in terms of cropping it, in terms of improving its quality of recognition, um, making it easier for machine learning to identify it. And then we push it up to a multi-factor database. Uh, we use some partners like Vivino. We also have our own database. And through that, we actually go through the wine, we refine the label, and then we actually, once we identify all those different pieces, um, we then link it to content. So the bottle starts to come to life. So, you know, you guys are great examples. You like wine, but you don't know wine necessarily. And, you know, one of my frustrations with wine has always been, it's been this sort of very pretentious, very standoffish thing. It's, a, it's hard to learn wine. Every time I have friends come over and I start sharing wine with them, that's always their reaction. It's like, wow, I, I, I taste the same things you do, but I never knew how to understand it. And it was always so sort of off-putting or difficult when you get this 150-word description of crushed earth and all these things that you don't actually taste at home. You know, it makes it hard for, for the average person to do. So we actually take that data, we link it to content so that when you drop in a 2014 Napa Valley Cabernet, we start talking about the differences between valley floor and mountain fruit. Right, valley floor fruit being a lot more robust, a lot more uh, fruit forward mountain fruit because uh, the soil runs off and it tends to be more rocky. It's a lot more salinity, a lot more acid. So not really hard concepts to understand, but they're not made easy for people to understand. And so we wanted to be able to make something that would give you a sommelier at home. You just drop in the bottle and you can go up the learning curve as much or as little as you want. If you want to just drink, you can drink. And if you want to gain wine expertise, you can do that too. So this has been around since 2014, uh, it looks like. So w where are you right now in the life cycle of this company? You, it sounds like the product is, is made and, and available for purchase. So we spent about two and a half years going through various prototypes from alpha to beta, multiple rounds of beta. Um, in hardware, you build up, you do what's called tooling. So you spend, you know, over a million bucks building these tools that will make uh, the various metal and plastic parts you need. Um, on top of off-the-shelf components, Plum has almost 100 custom-made parts. Um, and we learned a lot along the way. Like one of the things that we learned is the science of wine preservation is not well understood. And so we went to experts saying, how do we measure preservation? So how do we know we're doing a good job? And the scary part was we got a different answer from everybody we asked. So it took some work before we could build a chemical lab to start to understand it. So we finally, after almost three years of hard work, started shipping in early October. And in early December, we actually sold out all of our supply. So before the end, of, before Christmas, we were actually gone. We had people calling and begging to, to get them a plum in time for Christmas. A lot of actors and actresses and uh, <laughs> you know, athletes that really wanted plum in their house. Um, and then uh, we started actually, we just started going in stock. So now plum's available for sale. You can go on the website and you can order it and get it in a few days. Um, and that's on the consumer side of our business. Um, we also sell through Williams-Sonoma. And then we, on top of that, launched a part of the business that I'm super excited about, which is our hospitality hotel business, um, where we've quietly signed deals with every major hotel chain. Oh, that'd be that'd be a pretty big market to tackle right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, seriously. Because people are in hotels, they're already spending money. You know, they expect a, a higher quality experience. Um, I'm curious from the, the technical side, you mentioned, uh, you know, like with the identification stuff that you scan the label, you've got a database. So these, these boxes, they're having to phone or, or are they, are, are they having to phone home to identify those, those bottles or do they, do they cache data internally? Like if they go offline, are they able to do their identification or no? So it's an always connected device. So there's a computer inside with Wi-Fi. There's actually Bluetooth that will enable in the future for some capabilities we're going to add. Um, but the device is always connected. And with machine learning, you generally want an always-on device because you know the corpus of data is so large and it's changing with such frequency that you really you don't want to do your machine learning offline. So you do your image optimization offline, and then you do your machine learning in the cloud. And that that mix turns to you know turns out works best. And did you guys engineer your own solution there, or are you piggybacking off of, like, uh, I, I know Amazon just opened up their AI platform, but Google had done it a while back, and a few others. Are, are you leveraging somebody else's platform for that? We use a multi-tiered algorithm. So we actually, one, use uh, Vivino, and then we also actually have our own AI tier that we use on top of that. Um, our label quality is a little unique in the sense that um, if you think about Plum from a photography standpoint, it's sort of like a darkroom. You close the door, and every bottle is lit identically, it's being 
shot by the exact same model of camera. Uh, and so you have, and it's the exact same focal distance away because it's sitting on a bottle tray. And so you have sort of an incredible uniform photography. And we think that gives us some advantages down the road. You're probably building a pretty cool database there as well. So um, one question I have, I know when we're talking about security every week, we're constantly talking about how uh, refrigerators are hacking people and, and everything <laughs> uh, you know, has that, that same password that, uh, that it came with. I assume based on your background that things are a little different and, and there's not an army of plums out there that are uh, trying to bring down Equifax and companies like that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we we uh, we actually hired a lot of the ex Mykonos team, so we have a lot of hackers on staff. Um, so we sort of always probably over rotate in that direction. But um, yeah, we so the way Plum works is we actually have a hardened Linux kernel that we use. Um, we actually run tokenization on each device so that uh, it can only be accessed by somebody who has the token. Uh, we even for support, you actually have to authorize us to be able to log in and see the data. Um, so yeah, we put probably more time than we should have into cyber. Yeah. And, and that's something that you say you put more time than you should have, but a lot of companies aren't putting any time in yeah. there and you have things like hard coded backdoor passwords and stuff that, that creates these nightmares for your device. Uh, you know, we were talking about it being always on that it phones home to the standard database that, uh, if, if the end user doesn't actually have to log into it, it minimizes that risk significantly. There, there isn't some interface that's compromisable. But uh, you said that they have to authorize support to get in. Do do users of Plum have like a, a user account? Do they have, have something they interface with the device or is it just kind of autonomous? Um, a little bit of both. So I didn't want to build an appliance that required a phone to, be, to use it. Um, you know, it's one of my frustrations with IoT is that you know, you talked about the refrigerators. There's all these devices that are coming online and people are throwing in Wi-Fi because they can and not because they necessarily should. And so, you know, for me, it sort of always comes down as a product guy. I always care about utility and I care a lot less about sort of exactly how the technology functions. So um, the reason we, we have a connected device is because we actually record every bottle you've ever had. And so as a wine lover, one of the things that frustrations is, you know, you drink these bottles of wine, you often forget. So we have this web app that allows you to see not only what you're drinking and be able to, to rate it, to say what food you paired it with, to be able to say what you thought of it. So when you revisit it later, um, you can see what you, what you thought the last time versus this time. But also you can see what your friends are drinking. And, you know, wine is, a, is like any other hobby. It's sort of for the innately geeky among us that love to collect, love to share a bottle of wine with friends, and love to be able to sort of see all of that data. And so I love nothing more than sort of scrolling through and say, you know, what are my friends drinking and what do they think of it? And you can see like, uh, you know, hey. Peter had 12 different bottles of wine yesterday. I wonder which one he liked the most. Well, I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to fit one of my boxes of wine in here because my, my <laughs> wine typically is in a, in a bladder uh, inside of a box. But we'll, we'll, I'm sure that'll be uh, version 2.0. Probably champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so my question is, you're, you're a serial entrepreneur. Uh, what's next for you? I assume you're, you're working on the next big thing, or is that under wraps? I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think Plum is sort of is the next big thing for quite a while. So one of the parts of the Plum business um, in that hotel side of the world is, is really all about how do you actually start to change hospitality? Because what most people don't realize about hotels, and I, I'm, a, I'm sort of a hotel geek too. I love the hospitality industry. I just find it fascinating trying to build that home away from home. But you know, one of the things that's super interesting about hospitality right now is it's being fundamentally transformed by technology. I can walk up to a hotel, bypass the front desk and check into the room with my phone. I can, I don't have to call room service. I can now order Uber Eats and get it delivered to my room faster than the hotel's own room service product. And I can have the folio sent to my phone when I leave, right? I no longer use the TV because I now have Netflix and Hulu on my phone um, or my laptop. And so you have this sort of interesting world where people are trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be hospitable in a world where I never actually interact physically with the guest? I may not even know who they are. And so, you know, one of the things that we that when we started showing Plum to hotels, they said to us is, could we automate all these things that we are manual today? So if you think about it today, you walk into a hotel room and you want a glass of wine. You have two choices. I can get down on my hands and knees and rifle through that old dorm room fridge and find some sort of plastic, you know, screw cap. 
Or I can pick up the phone and call room service and I'm going to wait 45 minutes for a glass of wine and saran wrap and I'm going to pay delivery charges and service fees to do it. And those are really sort of 50-year-old dated models. The minibar was introduced in the 1950s at the Waldorf Astoria. Um, room service is even older. It's from the 20s. And so what does it mean when technology sort of combines with hospitality? And I think it's going to be more profound than people realize. I think you're already seeing a lot of innovation with Airbnb and, um, and others. And I think, you know, that sort of speaks to this new sort of genre of travel. And I think it looks a lot different than the old genre. So I'm really excited about the idea of providing a set of on-demand services to hotel guests that really sort of make that experience better and are better than what they can do on their phone. Well, I know I personally hope to to see more more companies that are developing products like this at least spend a little bit of time on focusing on security like you have to ensure these devices are, are safe and stable. Uh, having that convenience is one thing, but knowing that you're, you're not part of some internet-wide botnet is a, another big part too. So uh, it's cool to see these technologies kind of diverge and come together and, and you get to reuse as, as time goes on. It's neat to hear those stories. We we hear so many people where they they just they move from one IT company to another, and here it's it's such a deviation, you know, jumping over to the wine world. But all that knowledge is still relevant over there, so it's cool to to see that all get tied back together. Yeah, and so, if if people want to find out more information about this, this is at Plum Wine, correct? Plum Wine, yeah. All right, and uh, anything else we we want to plug for you? Twitter, Facebook, uh, <laughs> anything you want people to know about? We're on Facebook and Twitter. Where you can, if you hit our website, you'll find all of that there. So yeah, plum.wine is the website. And uh, for hotels, it's hotels.plum.wine and has more information on our hospitality program. Fantastic. Well, David, that, that's a really cool story, Go, you know, going all the way back to, um, you know, when you were committing crimes, illegally uh, drinking uh, as a child, uh, <laughs> to now professionally drinking uh, as an adult. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us today. You know, it, it took a little bit of uh, uh, Google Kung Fu, but I did manage to turn up a, a screenshot oh. somebody took with a camera phone of the uh, Clippy with the black hat. Uh, from That's the, amazing. Yeah. That <laughs> so there's the, it looks like you're an unsophisticated script kitty. So, <laughs> so uh, thank you for that story and, uh, you know, really appreciate you being on the show with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, uh, we're going to take a little TV magic break here, and all of a sudden the screen's going to go away, and we're going to talk <laughs> about the, the news and stuff for this week. So uh, stick with us, and we will be right back after this. And there you have it, as you can see. Yep. TV we've, is gone. Yeah, we, we've done that. We've uh, hidden our wine glasses. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and no one ID'd us the whole time, which is fantastic. But that was a really cool interview. But uh, well, there's definitely a lot of news this week that we want to talk about as well. So we'll just uh, jump right into that for you. So um, first one, uh, this this is kind of cool from uh, from Microsoft. They're announcing that Windows Defender ATP uh, support is being rolled back uh, to Windows 7 and Windows 8.1. You don't normally hear about um, them putting features into older versions, but this is something I guess it's, it's pretty important for them to do that. You know, when I saw this announcement, there were a couple of things that caught me by surprise. I, I remember when, when Windows 10 came out and Microsoft made the announcement that, hey, we're going to start packaging Windows Defender right inside of the OS. And Windows Defender before used to just be malware, but now it was full-blown antivirus and anti-malware. The antivirus companies out there went nuts, right? The the Semantic, uh, Semantic Norton or whatever, uh, McAfee antivirus, all those guys, they went crazy saying... You're going to put us out of business. You can't package antivirus with your your product. It was the whole like web browser monopoly thing again. Yeah. Um, but that happened in Windows 10. They they did roll it out, so everybody technically had antivirus built into the OS. Well, they didn't do that for Windows 7 and Windows 8.1. And so you know the third party antivirus was still alive and well right there. Well, Microsoft really they end of life most of 8.1, and you know the support is kind of ticking down. They really focused on Windows 7 and Windows 10. So when they said, hey, we're backporting Windows Defender in its antivirus form to run on these other platforms, I was surprised to see Windows 8.1 in the list. I, I thought they would just do Windows 7 because this was targeted to businesses. They wanted businesses to be taken care of. Um, now, if you work for a business and you look at this and you think, oh, sweet, antivirus is going to be free for us from now on, I do want to qualify this. Like, 
this particular antivirus protection was really not designed for businesses. It was really designed for end users because there's no central management. There's no central reporting, right? So you still have to couple this with something else to be able to catalog all that information to know when a machine is infected and how long it's been since antivirus is updated. But it's nice to know that if you're running an updated Windows 7 or updated Windows 8.1 machine as well as Windows 10, that you've definitely got some kind of antivirus product in there doing its work. Now, they didn't, or at least uh, the article that I read, and I guess I'm on the official blog here, they didn't actually come out and, and throw a date of, hey, this is when it's going to happen. But they did announce that it's going to happen, that we are going to see that update, uh, and that uh, starting starting soon, that that functionality will be built into all of the currently supported Microsoft operating systems. Well, I will hold my breath. We'll, we'll see when this comes. <laughs> I mean, do, is... Windows Defender, so basically you're just saying that that's good enough for an end user, but not something a business should rely on. Uh, yeah, I mean, a business could rely on it. There, there's arguments out there that there's more effective antivirus products, like, um, you know, the Kaspersky's, the Panda antivirus, AVG, they all come out every year, and, and they do contests, and one vendor might win one year, another vendor wins another year. Um, you know, I, I like Sophos antivirus, but that doesn't mean Windows Defender is bad. I just like one product better than another. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got their own preference. Now, the challenge here is not so much whether it's better or worse, but that there's no central management. Now, if your business doesn't need that, then it, it's suitable. You can use it. But if you're in a business environment and you have company-issued laptops and desktops, you want to know if a machine is infected. You want to know if a machine hasn't been updated. You need that central management piece. So using this kind of, I'm going to call it free, it's not free because you pay for the operating system, but um, but this kind of included antivirus, what you're giving up is that ability to have that central management. Makes sense. Well, uh, sticking with Microsoft, uh, now we'll, we'll switch gears. This one on uh, digitaltrends.com. Uh, it says, soon you won't have to be a Windows insider to test Microsoft's newest apps. Uh, so they're actually kind of opening that up to a... Um, this is just further along in the Microsoft we're becoming an open source company thing, isn't it? I mean, this is how they, those, those companies do it. You know, this reminded me of something that happened with Google years ago. Uh, if you had an Android phone, and I know you're an iPhone user, so you haven't experienced this, but uh, for an Android user, it used to be that Google packaged their major apps with the operating system. So, uh, you know, Gmail, Google Calendar, their, their Google Docs platform, that stuff was packaged with the OS. So anytime they wanted to update Gmail on the Android phone, you would have to get a whole Android update. And in the Android world, the phone providers, they suck at pushing out updates. And so there'd be some bright, shiny new Play Store or Gmail app, and you couldn't try it out until, usually until you bought a new phone, which was a lame way to do it. So Google broke that apart and said, for now on, we're going to update the apps separately from the OS. Well... Microsoft has been packaging apps with their OS for a long time. And lately, if you wanted to try out the betas, if you wanted to see the new versions of some of these apps, you had to be a Windows Insider. And if you're a Windows Insider, you had to run the Windows Insider tracker or circle for your, your actual, well, they're called update rings, right? That your, your OS, you run the stable OS by default. And if you get into the Windows Insider update ring, then you get these beta builds and sometimes even like alpha quality builds where it's not terribly stable and it's really hard to exit the update ring in fact you can't just turn it off you have to say don't take the next update instead wait till stable catches up which might take six months it could take a long time to exit the update ring so there's a big risk with moving into the insider program you might not want to do the beta of your operating system but you are willing to do a beta of the Microsoft apps. And so now Microsoft is splitting that off so that if you want to just try the betas of their apps, that's fine. You get the stable OS track, and it's now nice and separate. That reduces a lot of the risk of being in that insider program and, and getting a chance to see that stuff. And if you've never heard of the Windows Insider program, it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, go to go to Microsoft's site. Check it out. Do a Google search. It'll turn up. It's free. And you get to try all the new beta features, these release builds, the fall creator update. You got that like six months before anybody else did. And it was your chance to, to test it. And if there were bugs or anything, you had an easy reporting system. But it is neat. If you're an IT professional, it's a great way to learn new features before your end users get them. 
And if you're just an enthusiast, it's a great way to see what's coming down the line. Yeah, and it's cool to be able to kind of pick and choose what you want to see and what you don't want to see. Yep. Uh, and, they'll, and they'll probably get a lot more feedback then because they'll probably have a lot more users that are electing to um, to go that route. So that that's uh, that's pretty cool. And going back to your Android example, I always loved, too, when they'd put 100 apps that I was never going to use on there as well <laughs> from third parties. That was always a big feature uh, for me. Yeah. Uh, make it where you can't delete it. Exactly, so you've got this the MySpace icon on your homepage. Yeah. You can't do anything about it. Well, that that I going to have there anyway. But uh, All right, we talked last week uh, about a, a fun uh, story with the Amazon Key where um, someone showed a video of how they were able to actually hack it where they could get back into um, someone's home after the package was delivered um, and steal everything else from the home, just leave the package. But... Uh, uh, the funny thing was that we were talking about how Amazon hadn't issued a response, and that's really why they posted it online uh, on Twitter is because they weren't getting that response. Uh, well, uh, this article from ZDNet saying, after dismissing the security flaw, Amazon patches the key uh, smart lock anyway. So clearly uh, something that they were aware was, in fact, uh, an issue that, that needed to be addressed. But, um, uh, you know, I think this is kind of a PR move to, to just kind of ignore it but patch it. Yeah, I, I think with Amazon, they, they recognized that this attack was not really practical, right? It was really hard to pull off. And so what they were saying was, hey, this is not a, a real attack our regular people are going to have to worry about. So we don't really need to do anything. And they were ignoring it. The hacker that had kind of discovered this, you know, he wanted his five minutes of fame, so throws it out on Twitter. But it wasn't a hard thing to patch. So Amazon, I think they did the smart thing for a company, which is to say, boy, we don't want a PR debacle. We don't want people thinking we ignore security. So even though it's not a real-world scenario, we'll go ahead and patch it. It's not a big deal. There are some times where these types of patches actually remove functionality, and then it would be a big deal. But I think this was a zero-risk one for Amazon. So they they pushed the fix. They knocked it out. Uh, and I think it's, it's important for everybody to remember that while Amazon is a massive company with a ton of funding and, and some of the most talented IT staff in the world as far as security and infrastructure, that a lot of these products they launch are cutting edge. I mean, how many other companies have automated key locks that let their delivery people drop stuff inside of your door? I'm pretty sure Amazon's the first, at least the first to do it at scale. So there's going to be bugs and kinks like these that pop up. And so when you buy a product like that, you you should be accepting of that, saying, I know this isn't a perfect system. If you're wanting perfect, you need to wait at least a year. You know, let this product get out there in the wild. Let it get general uptake. Uh, it's like when a when a car manufacturer releases a brand new car. That's exactly what I was going to say. My dad would always tell me, don't buy a car the first year that it comes out because it's so cool and they're showing all the videos, but there's always those things that they fix, you know, in between that first and second year. Yeah, and and you're like, man, my new Ford Probe looks awesome. And then uh, a <laughs> no year later. No one's ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one's but, ever said that. Somebody probably said that, right? I, I'm sure. I, yeah. The, sold more the than CEO one. of Ford. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I've, I've switched down to the next article, and what's great is uh, I'm, I'm looking at it on my screen. The one that we bring up uh, to show is uh, from Don's, and I, I guess you've got an ad blocker, but my, the ads that I've got running are for Plum.Wine uh, oh, nice. already. So I've already been uh, I'm, I'm being remarketed uh, just that quickly, so I'm really excited about that. Um, but uh, this one's sticking with Amazon. Uh, Amazon is making its own AI chip for Alexa and AWS, and this is a report um, from Fosbytes.com. So... Um, with an with an AI chip, uh, what what am I able to do with that, Don? All right. So, uh, and this is from a security perspective. This is something people need to remember. All of these automated voice assistants, right? The Google Home, Amazon Alexa, the uh, uh, Apple HomePod, eventually, you know, that useless thing. But it was Siri, right? At least yeah. they're not incredibly smart on your device, right? They're really just listening to your audio. They capture it. They turn it into a thumbprint of sorts, and they send it up to cloud servers, and it's the cloud servers that actually figure out what your voice said and then find the answer to your question. So that requires two different pieces of logic, one logic to convert your voice into words the computer can understand, and then a second set of logic to figure out the answer to your question. That takes some, some good hardware for that, and general-purpose CPUs can do it, but they're not very efficient. So Apple created their own uh, chip to be able to handle that type of workload. Uh, Microsoft has been working on something similar with Cortana, but they haven't released it. Uh, Google had it for their Google Home product, which is probably the most effective, even though it's not the market leader. Uh, but Amazon did the same thing with theirs. But 
they kind of have a choice. Like they can keep this stuff private where, hey, we're going to make this AI chip and it's just going to be for powering our uh, Alexa enabled speakers, right? Or they can say, you know what, let's open source that platform. Let's make it where other people can use it. And maybe it's not open source. Maybe they just make it an, an open API that people can call to. So now you could develop applications and use the same back end. Now, why would they do that? Well, the more questions they get, the more feedback, the more answers, the smarter their system gets, which means you're helping to train their platform to make it smarter and able to answer questions that it may not be able to normally do. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. And Amazon has actually open sourced that whole platform where you can create your own Echo speaker without buying one of theirs. You can build your own. Uh, and there's several Raspberry Pi products out there that can do that where you build your own speaker and you control the whole thing. It, it's neat to be able to do that. So Google had already opened theirs. Amazon is opening theirs now so that you can start to leverage it as well. Yeah, because Amazon, I think it's the only one where you can, you'll see some in the store that have Amazon and Alexa enabled, uh, but it's not a built by Amazon product. So, so that's pretty cool. And yeah, speaking of uh, what you said there, um, the next article from, uh, from the download uh, is about uh, Google allowing anyone to use its AI chips via the cloud. So this is saying you don't actually even have to go out and buy any hardware if, if if you're using their cloud service, you're able to uh, access those machines um, through through the cloud then. Yeah, and, and they made this part of their uh, Google Compute Engine or the, just the whole Google Cloud service. So it, it goes into a, a hosted service. You basically reach out, get the, you know, send it the question data. It sends back the answer data, and you take advantage of it without having to have specialized hardware. That is really important for people that are creating software to do this stuff. So maybe you have a... Uh, a map application that you want people to be able to give directions to, you can leverage the the Google side of that. Uh, right now, Amazon is expecting you to have that certain hardware here. It's entirely in the cloud. These will equalize before too long, so you get the, the opportunity to be able to uh, leverage them the same way. And what I think is going to happen, and we'll see, I, I could be wrong on this, but five years from now, anybody who wants to do any kind of like AI in their software is not going to have to write it themselves. They can just pick and say, do I want to use... Amazon, Google, Apple, or Microsoft. Well, Apple's closed off right now, but eventually they'll, they'll open up because Apple's in follow mode right now. So, <laughs> so, uh, so that'll probably happen. And you just kind of pick which one gives you the cleanest data. Uh, and, and who knows, somebody, some third party will step in and make a special platform that leverages all of them. Uh, and then that'll be the next internet startup that sells for a billion dollars and maybe we get to interview them. Yeah, that'd be we'll fantastic. <laughs> uh, and I'm curious, in that, in, when you went through that timeline of it, it collects your audio, converts it, and mm -hmm. then sends it to um, to the cloud. Is is it going to the NSA first, or is it going to the NSA after it gets your answer back? I'm not... You know, there's... You, we joke about it, right? We, but there's actually some some serious concerns over that. People, you know, privacy advocates worry about it. When the Google Home Mini was first released, um, there was a, a button on top that you could tap to mute it really quick. And, or to ask it a question, you tap it and ask it a question. And the first ones that were released had a malfunction where they were recording 24 hours a day and sending your voice patterns up to Google. It was effectively a recording device for Google in your home, and, and they had to push out an emergency update completely disabling that top button. It was like that for weeks after the initial launch. Um, you know, your, your data is at risk. That was an accident. It can be done on purpose. The, you know, the law enforcement can get a warrant to pull that data. And even without a warrant, there was a, there was a story a few months ago about a, an Amazon Echo that thought that somebody had told it to call 911. And so it filed a 911 report and it was a, a domestic battery case yeah. where, you know, I, I think the, the husband or wife had yelled out something about calling like, I'm the going to call the police if you do that. Yeah. And it did it. <laughs> yeah. And, and they said, oh, we've, we've got that for you. And, and I'm sure that's something that we'll see in the Supreme Court at some point of, you know, was this an invasion of, of privacy? Or, the I mean, the United States it. versus Amazon Electric. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, it's funny. You, you think about in the, in the old days when, when your phone was going to be tapped, they actually had to uh, come to you. And, uh, you know, while you were out and, and hide something in your lamp or in your in your air duct, uh, now you're, you're tapping your home for them, uh, which is really nice. You're, and they just have to get the warrant and uh, access that data. But speaking of your data and uh, uh, the 
the U.S. government. Uh, this this one's coming from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, uh, and I think I'm going to go ahead and, and put this down as uh, no duh, um, <laughs> but North Korean uh, malicious cyber activity. North Korea is is doing stuff. It, it, that's crazy. All right. I- I got a theory on this one. I, I don't know about you. Uh, actually, I, I have two two things that I, I took away from this. Um, first off, you might have heard the news. I, I don't think we reported on it because it was so vague about the the IOC, the yeah. uh, International Olympics Commission committee, whatever committee, they are. Think, yeah. uh, the people who run the Olympics. They said, "Look, we're being hacked right now. There are people that are actively attacking our servers, our systems, but we don't want to say who it is, right?" Because the IOC is a, a multinational organization. They're trying to, to bring peace amongst all these nations. And so if somebody's attacking them, they, they don't necessarily want to say it, especially if it's some country that, I don't know, maybe got banned from the Olympics this time <laughs> around or, you know, somebody who's known in, for hacking in yeah. a, a nation right across the border from the host nation. It's not necessarily friendly. Yeah. Uh, these mm-hmm. are just uh, hypotheticals. Yeah, we're right? spitballing. Yeah. So, um, so what does the U.S. CERT do? The U.S. CERT comes out and says, hey, um, there's a lot of attacks right now from this country called North Korea. You might have heard of them. So be on the, the alert, right, and, and just be aware. So I, I think this is very much motivated by those announcements from the IOC. Yeah. Um, they're just saying, look, the attacks are out there. Now, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I don't know how they, they do this when they come up with names for these these teams, right? Because it's not like we called over to North Korea and said, hey, what, what do you guys name your <laughs> yeah. your cyber hacking team? Uh, and they tell you, like, oh, it's called Bob 2.0 or whatever. They, that doesn't happen. So we, we make up a name, right? Yeah. And when it's a, a Russian team, they get a name like Pretty Bear, right? And it's like, <laughs> Pretty Bear? What is that? But here it's Hidden Cobra. That's a pretty awesome name. Yeah. I I think we're just giving them legitimacy. I think you have to name it something like Pretty Bear to make them uh, ashamed, and, and maybe then they'll back down. But this just makes me think of, uh, uh, like, All Quiet on the Western Front or something where, you know, they, they stopped World War One on Christmas, and they all came out and sang uh, Silent Night, or at least in the movies they did. I don't know. I feel like for the Olympics, you know, North Korea could have just, yeah, and or or at least Mike Pence sitting there in that box could have just turned around <laughs> and said to Kim Jong Un's uh, sister, "Hey, can can you knock it off? Or can you give us like a week <laughs> when the luge is done at least? Can we can we start now, this back up again?" The sad part here is maybe they did. Yeah, maybe, maybe North Korea took the week off. You know, and they said, "Look, we're going to honor the Olympics. I'm, I'm going to send my sister. We're we're going to give them a break." But you know, because we pin everything on North Korea these days. You know, they, they get a bad rep. We don't know. Uh, we may never know. But uh, all I do know is that um, there's a hacking group out there called Hidden Cobra, which is awesome uh, as far as names go. And uh, you need to be on the alert. U.S. CERT warned you, so uh, be aware. Well, speaking <laughs> of hacking, um, one of the, the great ways to make sure your um, your website or your network is, is up to snuff is penetration testing. And now CompTIA uh, finally has the Pentest Plus. Is that how we say it? Yep. Yeah. If you, uh, if you are working in the uh, IT cybersecurity industry and you're responsible for pen testing, either as a red teamer pen testing other companies on like a contract basis, or if you're a blue teamer defending your own network, you need to know how to attack it. And there haven't been a lot of great certifications out there that that map to real world skills for this. So um, the group over at CompTIA, you know, if you're not familiar with them, they are a a nonprofit uh, vendor neutral organization. They they have member companies like like Microsoft, Apple, IBM. They're all a part of CompTIA. Um, they put together a certification called Pentest Plus. And it's designed to certify that you know at least the basics of, of getting in there and pen testing a system. And I know I say it like the basics, like, oh, this is somebody starting out. Pen testing is really hard. There's yeah. a lot of tools, a lot of tricks, a lot of techniques you need to be able to leverage. So a beginning pen tester is like a above average uh, you know, network admin or, or IT administrator or developer. So it's a, it's a hard job. There's a lot of, of tools of the trade you need. But this is a new certification. It's in beta right now. So if you want to jump in and take the beta, you can help to shape the Pentest Plus certification. Uh, CompTIA will typically offer either free or discounted vouchers to go and take the exam. So there's not a lot of risk, like when you take an expensive exam. But by doing this, they can gauge whether questions are effective or not effective. They can throw some out, bring some in. It's a great way to contribute to that environment. 
and and you know, make a difference, right? Help make that exam be a, a little bit better. Um, that exam is expected to launch. The, the actual final exam is expected to launch in the next six months. But the beta period will run on for a few months. Uh, usually, the betas only last about two months because then they do a two-month eval, two-month finalization, and then release the cert. So you'll be seeing that a little bit later this year. But anybody in the IT security career field or looking to get into it, it'll be a good certification to pursue. Yeah, and if we can bring that uh, webpage back up again, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that little logo. If you scroll down a little bit down, uh, right there, they've got the little white hat uh, in the logo. So uh, that's very cool. It, it makes me think of Spy versus Spy. Um, but uh, which, which is basically kind of what you're doing there. You've got two teams there. But um, uh, is this something that if I wanted to learn this skill, Don, where could I go in the in the short term future here uh, to learn about penetration testing? Or will IT Pro TV have a course? <laughs> yeah, you know our, our our course. This is where we sound like a commercial, right? So, uh, <laughs> so we have a, a lot of test uh, pen testing content on our site uh, as a as a platinum partner. We can't release pen test plus training until the certification goes live so we won't have formal pen test plus for another six months so that's not till the beta is over is what you're saying mm -hmm. well that's you know how do you develop a course if you don't know what's on the exam that's very so, good point. so that makes it a challenge i mean we, we develop to the objectives normally anyway so we, we work on that uh, but there is great training there there's also a number of internet resources you can go out to learn uh if you really want to learn cool stuff about pen testing i always recommend Paul Security Weekly, right? Uh, a lot of our viewers also listen to the Paul Security Weekly podcast. They go in really in depth into uh, pen testing and other security-related news. Definitely, you know, check them out. Uh, you know, there's there's no limit to the amount of, of sources out there to find information about this stuff. Definitely, and Don is a, a frequent uh, guest on that show as well. So that's definitely one you can check out. Mm -hmm. um, so last story of the day. This is this is one that it's pretty funny because as we were going through the list of stories to talk about today. I said, oh, Don, this is a cool headline. I can't believe this. Uh, it says, uh, uh, this is from motherboard.vice.com, so in the, in the Vice family. It says, a new hack can steal data from devices in Faraday cages. And we said, what, with, with a cable running out of it? Like, how, how the heck can you do that? And, and then we went on to read the story and just, just how ridiculous it would have to be. And, and I, to, to think of someone who has a Faraday cage, they say, okay, I've got this secure data. I'm going to air gap this computer. I'm going to put it in this Faraday cage, and then I'm. It's probably in a in a room that has motion detectors or heat sensors and and things on the locks and Tom Cruise hanging from Tom tables, Cruise dangling. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like the Faraday cage is the only source of security. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I keep my Alexa in a Faraday cage at home. That's how yeah, I might uh, as well. I'm able to uh, keep the NSA out of it. Um, but so so when we got into reading this to learn how it actually works, I mean, it's a it's cool technology, but when you talk about logistically, um, so what it says here is um, the extraction method dubbed mag uh, or Magneto, it, uh, it, you first have to have uh, malware, specialized malware on the air-gapped machine. So there's, there's problem number one. How are we getting into this device and actually getting physical access to it uh, because if it's an air gap, air gap machine, you need to have physical access. The, the second issue then, it, uh, it's basically able to um, make the, the CPU work overtime and it increases the magnetic field and then a, a smartphone that is located between 12 and 15 centimeters away from the device uh, can, can go ahead and capture information off of that. So really ridiculous when you think about it. If, if I'm going to go ahead and break in to be able to put this malicious stuff on here, Maybe I'll just put a cable, run that out the the cage or something. But yeah. th this is not really a, a, a thing that it's going to be a problem. I think for no, a lot of people. No, yeah, this is is really silly. And I I told I, I told Peter because right? he he's not like a, a formally trained IT admin no. or anything, right? So uh, Peter represents the, the common man and <laughs> uh, or a common woman. And <laughs> and so uh, when you see a headline like this, it sounds pretty scary, right? If you even know what a Faraday cage is, right? So you know, we're blocking off all wireless signal and electrical communication. I know it from Enemy of the State with Will Smith. Well, when I think go. it was I think it was Gene Hackman had the the Faraday cage that he had built in in his little <laughs> layer but i'm sorry go all, on all i learned about it i learned from will smith movies we should that should be a book right there <laughs> we could, we could work that book. out um 
so, uh, so you know, at that point, you got this highly secured system, and these guys have developed. It's a, it's a study. Like they spent time on this. They 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 found a way to get that data out. But when you break it down to the the brass tacks, like how would I actually execute this? It goes back to what Amazon said about the the key problem, where they were like, "Look, this is not a real world scenario. You can't do this." That's how this is, right? This is barely even a proof of concept yeah. uh, because, yeah, all right, if they've already compromised the secure machine, then you don't really need to, to, to go through all this trouble unless you're trying to do some kind of persistent threat, right? Like you want to, you want to persist in that secure system to continue leaking data out of it, right? So let's say that that's your goal and, and maybe, maybe you're the, the manufacturer of that device so you basically build this, this hack into it. Well, the fact that the receiver has to be 12 and a half centimeters <laughs> or closer uh, for our American listeners, 12 and a half centimeters, I mean, that's like six inches, isn't it? It's less than six inches. I, I believe it is. That yeah. is that, that is small. Like, I mean, I my, my finger span is more than Yeah, than I was that. like, maybe I'm doing the centimeter conversion wrong. We're, we're talking about kilometers, right? <laughs> no, this yeah. is, oh, meters? Okay. Yeah, so this is just not a, not a practical thing. Um, but it certainly makes a good headline. It is on a number of news sites. Uh, here it's on... Uh, motherboard yeah. or advice.com, which um, I've taken to calling the TMZ of tech news. Um, we'll see. You know, maybe maybe the goal here is, hey, they just want to do a proof of concept. Sure. And down the road, they'll show where we can go 12 kilometers away. That's a difference. Yeah. Then then that's something you have to worry about. It and and it is like I said, it is a cool technology. It, it's a uh, um, an interesting thing that that they're doing because you know at first when I when I read the headline of Don, just, Don well that's impossible. We can't. You know, you can't do that. But um, you know, apparently, uh, apparently you can, but just not in a way that's actually going to put anyone at risk uh, just yet. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe you'll all come back and laugh at us in in two years when people are stealing stuff out of Faraday cages. It reminded me of the the one there was one about six months ago where um, I, I think I think a Faraday cage was involved also because they couldn't use wireless, uh, where they were using the blinking lights on the front of the server, and the way the hack worked is that you had to have a camera somewhere in the secure server room to be able to see the lights blinking on the front of the server so you could compromise it and the lights blinking would be transmitting the ones and zeros, the binary data to get it out of there and you could exfiltrate from the camera video footage, right? But there were so many hoops you had to jump through to make that happen. But those blinking lights, that would pass through a Faraday cage, sure. right? Or depending on the cage design. Yeah, but this, this is the kind of thing you'll see in Mission Impossible movies, but not in, in, uh, yeah. in real life anytime soon, but... Anyway, so that is the uh, crazy story of the day, and that's pretty much going to do it for us uh, on this one. We want to um, thank our guest, David, who was uh, on with us earlier. That was uh, really insightful and, and really a cool story, uh, and, and hopefully you, uh, you can check out Plum.Wine, get some more information about that, or go ahead and pick one up if you're, if you're a wine aficionado. Um, that sounds like you know if that's something I was into, that'd be that'd be really cool. I looked on their site; it said pre-order, but then if you went to buy one, it says uh, they ship within five days, so you there can you have go. one very very quick. Uh, you can impressive. Be drinking properly temperatured wine, um, just just in under a week. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, like I said, uh, that's going to do it for this one. Uh, please like, share, uh, tell all your friends, and uh, I guess that's it then, right? Yeah, uh, we still don't have a good closing slogan, do we? Leave a light on for us. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait, that's um, um, something about caging up your. See, I'm trying to I'm trying to relate mm -hmm. it to the the last story there, but yeah, we're gonna break this rusty Faraday cage. Oh, we can go back to the wine. So, uh, <laughs> so cheers, everyone. Bottoms up. Go with that. Is that good? TTFN. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. <laughs>